We find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 23 this morning, sort of. Uh, we're working our way through Leviticus, but most of the information on the Passover is going to be found in Exodus chapter 12. So we'll start in Leviticus chapter 23. I'll read that passage. Pastor Dale already read it. Um, and then we will spend most of the rest of our time in Exodus chapter 12. So Leviticus 23 is on page 169 in the church Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a church Bible close by. And then Exodus chapter 12 is on page 89 in the church Bible. So I'm going to read it. We're going to, I'm going to ask the Lord for help. And then we'll, we'll look a little bit at Leviticus 23 and then, like I said, most of their time in Exodus 12. Leviticus chapter 23, page 169 in the church Bible, beginning in verse 1. And Yahweh spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The appointed times of Yahweh which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to Yahweh in all your places of habitation. Verse 4. These are the appointed times of Yahweh, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight is the Passover of Yahweh. This is God's ancient holy word. Let's ask him for help. Lord God, give us understanding into these passages this morning. Lord, these ancient words are your words that you communicate to us. And Lord, they sometimes seem strange with strange rituals and practices and feasts that seem very foreign to our thinking. But Lord, in them, we have wonderful pictures of realities that have come to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, feed our souls this morning as we seek to meet Jesus at the feast of Passover. In Jesus' name, amen. Holidays and rituals are teaching tools. Several months ago, I was looking on my phone, putting some event in my calendar, and uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like every strange kind of woke holiday is to be found at least on the Apple calendar. And you look at it and you think, I didn't know this was a holiday. Clearly, some, somebody invented this holiday, and, 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 and to be sure, on our calendars, we have the more traditional holidays of Christmas, Easter, St. Patrick's Day, St. Valentine's Day, different holidays on the church calendar. But then you'll come across things like Earth Day. And clearly somebody thought Earth needed a day to celebrate. I don't know who, but somebody did. And then, of course, in our culture today... Uh, is a push, again, using holidays as a way to teach and to instruct uh, to promote all manner of strange ideologies and, dare I say, sexual perversions. In fact, they're not afraid to take an entire month of June and to say, let's celebrate this during this month. And you're, everybody is supposed to bow down and celebrate. They, not just a day, not a holy day, a holy month. Well, this idea of instructing through holy days, instructing through events on the calendar, is actually nothing new. It's ancient. It's very old. In fact, we find that in Leviticus chapter 23, as God lays out seven different holy days, seven holidays that were to be observed by the Israelites. And these holy days find their roots in the weekly holy day that was given for ancient Israel, namely the Sabbath. 
We see this in the first couple verses of Leviticus 23. It says, Speak to the sons of Israel the appointed times of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is the Sabbath to Yahweh in all your places of habitation. And so he introduces the, the weekly holy day, namely the weekly Sabbath that was to be observed as a day of rest for ancient Israel. And then we're going to see seven feasts that flow out of this ancient Sabbath. Okay, And the first of these we see in verse 4, namely the Passover. Now you may have some Jewish friends who celebrate Passover, but for most of us, uh, it's, it's a foreign holiday. We don't, we don't know what it is, but it has its roots in the scripture. In verse 4, it says, These are the appointed times of Yahweh, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the appointed times. The first, and so here's the first holiday. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Passover of Yahweh. And that's all that Moses records here about Passover. And certainly part of the reason for that is because he spent chapters explaining what the Passover is over in the book of Exodus. Now we're not doing a study on the book of Exodus, but I think in order for us to understand the Passover and its placement here in Leviticus 23, it would be prudent for us to spend the rest of our time this morning in Exodus chapter 12. Now, as you're turning to Exodus chapter 12, you might be thinking, which Exodus 12, as I mentioned earlier, begins on page 89 in the church Bible. You say, okay, you know, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, I've never celebrated Passover, I've never celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Why don't we celebrate these other things? These other holidays that God laid out. Well, again, as we're going to see with each of these feasts, they, they, are, they, they are pictures that find their fulfillment in Christ. Now, there is a feast that we do observe today. It's called the Lord's Supper or communion. And it points backwards to the work of Christ upon the cross. But when we come to the New Testament, there's certain verses and passages that highlight that, uh, that these feasts uh, are not binding upon the consciences of New Testament believers. One of these we find in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. It says, Therefore let no one judge you in, uh, in regard to food and drink. Okay. In other words, again, just like the ceremonial law of those unclean laws of food, certain foods that made one unclean, the Apostle Paul says, don't, don't let anybody judge you in regard to those ceremonial unclean laws, whether you abide by them or not. And then it says in verse 16, or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day, which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath and these different holy days, these were shadows, pictures that pointed to Christ. They find their fulfillment in Christ. So now that the reality has come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't observe them. But that doesn't mean that we don't learn from them, that there's important truths for us to learn. And I think in a wonderful and glorious way, we're able to see how thousands of years before Jesus ever came, God was teaching his people with these pictures so that when the reality came in the Lord Jesus, his people would say, ah, now I see how it all fits together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And uh, so turn your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus 12, again, as I mentioned at the outset, is a kind of a teaching tool. In chapter 13, verse 14 to 17 of Exodus, I know I told you to turn to chapter 12, but I lied to you. It's a, it was a play-action pass. So turn over to Exodus 13, verse 14. It says, And it will be when your sons ask you in a time to come, saying, What is this? 
In other words, uh, the lamb's in the oven, you know, the, the, the unleavened, the pita bread's on the table, the bitter herbs are all laid out. Mommy, Daddy, what are we doing here? What's this all about? Moses tells him, this is what you're to say. With a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it happened when Pharaoh hardened his heart with stiffness about letting us go that Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of, of my sons I redeem. So it will be as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries between your eyes. For with a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. So what we, what we see here is that God intended the Passover, and I think we can conclude all of these feasts, to be teaching tools, to be teaching for the next generation, to be teaching instruction of the mighty works of salvation that God has done. And so with that, because God wanted the Israelites to remember the importance of what the Passover pointed to, we are called to remember. What are we to remember about the Lord through Passover? There's three truths that we are to remember. The first of these is we are to remember the severe judgment of God. But, because most of us are not well versed in the first three-fourths of the Bible with what we call the Old Testament. Let me, let me just kind of back up in the story here, okay? So the Bible begins way back in Eden with God, God creating Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rebel against God, okay? And wickedness enters the world. and We're all born sinners from that point on. And then God begins in Genesis chapter 12 to, to, to do something of a kind of a new creation with Abraham where he's promising him a land, a great name, and a people that God is going to do something amongst the descendants of Abraham. And you remember Abraham, you know, he has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob and Esau and Jacob and Esau or, or Jacob has the, the 12 sons and, and it's in the midst of that situation with Jacob, his son Joseph goes down to Egypt as he sold into slavery, right? And then through that, all the tribes of Israel, all the descendants of Jacob wind up down in Egypt. And they spend 430 years down in Egypt. And they're kind of like a, a landlocked people in Egypt. They're shepherds who are in the land of Goshen and, and they keep multiplying. They're very fertile and this makes Pharaoh nervous. Okay, Pharaoh is the, Pharaoh is not the name of some dude, it's a title. Basically the, the pharaohs of Egypt, they, that's what they called their kings, pharaohs, okay. And there was a pharaoh who arose, according to the early pages of Exodus, who did not know Joseph. Remember, Joseph was kind of in close with the pharaoh of his day. Well, there arose a pharaoh who, who didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the Hebrew people. All he sees is these Hebrew people, and they're multiplying, and he sees them as a threat to the Egyptians. And so he enforces hard, strict, forced labor upon the Hebrews. So much that they begin to cry out to God. And God hears their cry. And he begins to respond. He's raising up a deliverer. He's raising up Moses as a deliverer, as an instrument in his hand to deliver his people. And, and one of the tactics that Pharaoh even does, this dastardly deed to try to stop the reproduction of the Hebrews is he instructs them to have their baby boys murdered to toss them into the Nile River as a kind of sacrifice to the God of the Nile now you remember the Hebrew midwives aren't going along with this plan but so then years go by and Moses grows up and 
It's becoming obvious as God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush that Moses is the man whom God is going to use to deliver his people out of Egypt. But this does not come without, it doesn't come with a kind of secret clandestine operation to get the Hebrews out of Israel. No, God goes public with the way he's going to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. Namely, through these ten plagues. In each of these plagues, God was seeking to call the Egyptians and the Israelites to repentance to see him as the one true God. Each of these plagues was making a mockery out of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. What do I mean by that? Well, I mentioned the God of the Nile. The God of the Nile was... A God named Happy. He was the God of annual flooding. There was also Osiris. And so what did God do? The initial plague with the Nile. He turned it into blood. This Nile that had become worshipped as the source of life became an instrument of death. Frogs, chapter 8. The God... Happy and Het, who Het had a head of a frog and the body of a human. This was the god of fertility. So God said, you like to worship frogs that are very fertile? Here's frogs. And so there was just a disgusting amount of frogs jumping around Egypt. There was the god of gnats. This was the, the God probably mocking the earth God, Geb. And then there was the God of protection, the fly God, Vachi. God says, you want to worship the fly God? Here's flies. There was the bull God named Apis. So, remember all the livestock that died? There was Sekhmet, the goddess of epidemics. This was the Fauci God. And so God sent the epidemic of boils all over the body. Deal with that. And then there's Newt, the sky goddess, the god of storms. And so God sends hail and fire. And then there's Cyrus, the god of crops. So God sends locusts to eat all the crops. And then there's Ra, the sun god. One of the last of the plagues. What did God do? He shut the lights out. Okay. So each of these, these plagues had to do with mocking God, in a sense flexing his muscles and showing that he is the creator God. And you must submit to him. And you remember with each of these plagues, uh, there, there was a kind of... Um, short-lived change of mind that Pharaoh had, right? You know, as the plague is just destroying crops and destroying people, uh, you know, Pharaoh cries uncle. And he says, okay, Moses, okay, I, I give up. We will let your people go. We will let them worship in the desert. And then... And then he has a change of heart again. He hardens his heart and says, no, 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 I'm not going to let you go. And this happens repeatedly each of these nine times until this last plague. This last plague, which may be a mockery of Heget, the goddess of birth, or Min, the god of reproduction, or it may also be a mockery of Pharaoh himself, which the Pharaohs were believed to be deified. And of course, it would be the firstborn son of Pharaoh who would be next in line to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. And so it's with this last plague that God says he is going to take the life of every firstborn son in Egypt. What an awful plague. 
this would have been. To be sure, this demonstrated the severity of the judgment of God. To be sure, this was also a kind of a, 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 of a lex talionis law, a tit for tat, an eye for eye, a tooth for tooth, because remember, it was Pharaoh himself who was tossing the baby boys of God's people into the Nile River. And God, in an act of justice, was saying, okay, you want to take my sons and throw them into the river? I will take your sons. And so God threatened this judgment over Egypt, but it was also a threat against Israel because Israel had to believe and trust God. God said he was going to take the life of every firstborn son in Egypt unless, unless they abided by what he said. So Let's, let's pick it up in chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. So God is he's resetting the calendar, which is interesting because the next time the calendar would be reset would be B.C. A.D., God's setting the calendar here and he says on the 10th month, 10th of this, this first month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. God is going to give instructions that this lamb is to be sacrificed. We'll, we'll talk about this in the next point, but The lamb had to be killed and blood had to be put on the doorpost. That was the only way to escape this severe judgment of God. And indeed, God carries through with this threat. Indeed, the firstborn sons of Egypt who did not apply the blood, who did not practice this Passover, indeed woke up that morning with dead sons in fact it's recorded at the end in Exodus 12 29 it says now it happened at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn cattle Then Pharaoh rose at night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and your sons, and go and serve Yahweh as you have spoken. Take your flocks and your herds as you have spoken and go and bless me also. One can only imagine what the horror of that evening was like. The wailing that could be heard as fathers and mothers woke up to seeing their firstborn son dead and also by the way there's no there's no age that's set on this firstborn so it could have been children but it also could have been older people who were also the firstborn so much that Moses records that there was not a household in all of Egypt that was not in some way affected by having to plan for a funeral And to be sure, this highlights the sobering severity of God's just judgment upon a people that would rebel against Him. He had given them warning after warning through the ten plagues, God summoning them to see who He is, that He is the true and living God, that He is the creator of the universe, that they ought not to be bowing down to all this various pantheons of God, but they ought to bow down to Him. 
But if they still refused, after warning, after warning, God would exercise his judgment and he did. He did. Michael Barrett says, the death sentence was issued against every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And since Israel inhabited the land, they would not have been exempt. Their being in the land from which they could not free themselves itself was misery. What, what, what Michael Barrett is highlighting is that Israel also was under this threat of judgment. Israel also had to go through this practice of sacrificing the lamb. If they did not, then they would be subject to the same threats of judgment. Friend, do you see something of the severity of God's justice and wrath? This is the God of the Bible. I understand that our culture today would like a, 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 a kind of God that we make after our own image. But the God of the Bible is a God of severe justice. He's a God of pure and perfect righteousness with inflexible standards of judgment. And he, he, did, he did warn them. He warned them of his judgment. And he even gave an opportunity to, be, to escape from this judgment. But so many refused and did so to their own destruction. It's the same today. And again, sometimes we think, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Well, the God of the New Testament, he's much kinder. <clears throat> to be sure, we find the climax of God's kindness in the New Testament. But we also still see the severity of his judgments. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, you have heard that it was said by the ancients of old, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, even if you have anger in your heart against your brother, you call your brother a fool or raka, he says you are guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In fact, nobody spoke more about hell, which is the place of God's justice and judgment, than the Lord Jesus himself. He calls it a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is what we all deserve because of our own rebellion against God. And God still continues to call out it may not be through the plagues of Egypt, but the Bible says even the general creation, or even the general revelation of creation, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, the work of his hands. He calls out through the preaching of the gospel and summons everybody to, as Jesus said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He offers full pardon and full forgiveness, full amnesty for anybody who would but repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope for eternal life. Friend, don't refuse his offers of mercy because the Passover is a reminder that God does carry through with his threats of justice. He did as he said, and he will do as he says for us today. If you do not repent and trust in the Lord Jesus, you will be subject to God's eternal and unending judgment and wrath. Young people, you hear sermon after sermon, Sunday school after Sunday school, Respond to the Lord's offer of forgiveness. His threats of judgment are real. We never know when we're going to die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Don't roll the dice with eternity. Make sure you are found safe in the house with blood on it. But secondly, not only remember the severity, the severe judgment of God, but remember the substitute of God. 
Let's pick up where we left off in chapter 12. In verse 4, it says, Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to each man should, according to what each man should eat. You are to apportion the lamb. Your lamb shall be a male without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation shall slaughter it at twilight. So here was what was supposed to be done. That on the first day of the month, and this is the Jewish calendar, so this is not January, but on the Jewish calendar, it's somewhere around March, April. On the 10th day of this month, you are to select a lamb. And on the 14th day of that month, that lamb was to be killed. And there were certain qualifications for the lamb in verse 5, had to be male, without blemish, a year old. So again, this is, this is similar to the, the stipulations regarding the sacrifices, that whole sacrificial system. And so this is a hint here that this lamb is a kind of a sacrifice. And also it is helpful to note that Later on, and, and maybe during this time, but we know later on after the temple was built, there was a kind of inspection process where the lamb was to be brought to the priest to be inspected to make sure it was proper so that it would be sacrificed, that it was truly without blemish. And here again we have a picture. Because it's, again, no accident in the earliest pages of the gospel of John in John chapter 1 and verse 29 that John the Baptist points towards Jesus and says behold what the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world it's no accident that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 the apostle Paul speaks of Jesus as the Paschal or the Passover Lamb. It's no accident that John in the book of Revelation, as he's talking about future plagues that are going to be poured out on planet earth, he speaks of one in the midst of all of it who is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb. And He too, in a sense, before His slaughter was to be inspected. You remember He was put on trial before Pontius Pilate, who sent Him over to Herod, who sent Him back to Pontius Pilate. And each person whom the Lord Jesus stood before, He was found to be blameless. Innocent. So much that Pontius Pilate knew that in ordering any punishment upon this man, that he was ordering punishment upon a man who was innocent. And he said, I wash my hands of this. I know this is what you guys want, but it's not what I really want. Because he was innocent. It's no accident that John records in John chapter 19, as Jesus was hanging upon the cross, and those Roman soldiers who had been experts at execution and making sure the criminal is dead, they inspected Jesus, and normally what they would do in order to hasten the death process of crucifixion, because crucifixion was a long agonizing death. Basically, you were there dehydrated, starving to death, and probably eventually suffocating to death. And, and this could take days. It was an awful, awful way to die. So one of the things they would do to hasten the death process was to basically take a pole and break the legs of those who were being executed. 
But do you remember what happened when they came to Jesus? He was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. And John records in John 19.36, For these things came to pass in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone would be broken. What's that an allusion to? Well, you have to go to Exodus chapter 12, where one of the stipulations was that none of the bones of the lamb that would be sacrificed could be broken. And then there had to be an application of the blood, verse 7 of, of Exodus 12. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails, and you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left on it until morning, you shall burn with fire." So the sacrifice was to be eaten and all of it was to be eaten and if if all of it was not eaten then the rest of it was to be burned. Again, highlighting that it was a sacrifice to be consumed that, that, that the worshiper could participate in with in eating of but all the rest of it had to be burned and consumed and offered unto the Lord. Verse 11, now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded and sandals on your feet and the staff in your hand you shall eat it in haste. It is the Passover of Yahweh and I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And there will be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What was God saying with the picture of the lamb? It's not that difficult to figure out as we read the rest of the story. That the lamb was a substitute. The lamb was a sacrifice instead of the firstborn in that house dying and bearing the curse of death. That lamb would bear the curse of death. And the blood had to be put on the lentils and on the the doorposts and God would see the blood and his judgment would pass over that house so that he would not execute judgment over that house and you were safe as long as you were in the house. As long as you believed God. As long as you applied the blood. As long as there was a substitute for the judgment of God. Friend, God carried through with this promise. It was effective. God didn't tell the Israelites, well, just straighten up your act, clean out all your household idols, and then I will pass over in judgment. He didn't tell the Israelites, well, just, you know, uh, you know, try a little bit harder, clean up your lives, and then I will pass over in my judgment. No, he said, a lamb must be slaughtered, a lamb must be eaten, the blood must be applied in order for my just, just wrath and judgment to pass over. And so it is with new covenant believers. You must be covered by the blood. By the blood of the Passover lamb. The one whom all this meal points to. 
His death and His resurrection. His offering His own body on that Roman tree as a sacrifice, as a substitute so that you would not have to bear God's eternal and unending judgment. And friends, this sacrifice is also effective. It works. His death secures your eternal salvation. There's the promise of Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to be in him. You have to be in the house covered by the blood for God's judgment to pass over. And friends, if you are united to Jesus by faith, if he is your only hope to be able to stand before a holy God, you are safe in him. Though the severity of God's wrath is is severe and indeed there's a sense in which it puts a lump in our throats You can have the hope and confidence that on the day of judgment that wrath will pass over you and you will not be sentenced to hell. It's not based upon you. I mean, think about it. Any of the Israelites, there might have been some firstborn Hebrews who were sweating all night long, right? They had seen those nine previous judgments and knew that God could do and indeed would do what he said he would do. But they were there for the slaughter of the lamb. They partook of the meal. They're lying there in bed looking at the clock. Nine o'clock goes by. Ten o'clock goes by. 11 o'clock goes by. It's 11.59. Will God's judgment strike me dead? And 12.01 comes. And they're still alive. They might have been up all night sweating, fretting, wondering. But they had faith. They had faith enough to believe indeed. I must sacrifice. I must do what Yahweh says. And so, friend, you are not saved, even, dare I say, on the quality of your faith. You are saved on the object of your faith. Because there probably were some Israelites who slept like babies. They didn't even need melatonin. Ambient, nothing that night. They slept like babies. Deep sleep. To be sure, they probably had stronger faith. But both of them, when it hit 1201, were still breathing. Jesus is the substitute. He is the object of our faith. Put your hope in him. Friend, do you, do you struggle with assurance of salvation? Look to Jesus. Look to the lamb who has been slain. What is our comfort in life and death as we sung? Christ alone. Christ alone. If you're leaning on anything in yourself, any of your own merits, You're not going to have much assurance of salvation because you know yourself all too well. But lean on the merits and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. His sacrifice is sufficient. The blood, as Michael Barrett again says, the blood was the protective covering between God's people and curse. What a lesson in the gospel this is. There is no maybe in the gospel. The blood of Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. None will be in heaven other than those saved by the blood. And none will be in hell who have been saved by the blood of Christ. None will be in heaven unless they're saved by the blood of Christ. But nobody will be in hell who is saved by the blood of Christ. God promised And just as he was faithful to his promise to those ancient Hebrews, 
he will be faithful to his promise to you. Exodus 20, or Exodus 12, 20 says, you shall not eat anything unleavened in all your places of habitation. You shall eat unleavened bread. Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said, bring out and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood which is in the basin and touch some of the blood that is in the basin on the lintel on the, and on the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside of the doorway of his house until morning You had to stay in the house. And Yahweh will pass through and smite the Egyptian. And and he will see the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. And Yahweh will pass over the doorway and will not allow the, the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. And you shall keep this event as a statute for you and your children forever. This leads us to Third reminder, not only remember the severe judgment of God, not only remember the sweet substitute of God, the Lamb of God, but thirdly, remember the necessity of faith in God. The necessity of faith. Well, I didn't see faith in this passage. It's undergirding everything. You had to believe what God said. You had to trust He would come through with his promise of judgment and smite the firstborn. You had to trust and believe that indeed the lamb was efficacious to save you from that judgment. In fact, it's no accident that the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28 says, By faith he kept the Passover in the sprinkling of the blood so that, he who, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. It's referring to Moses. It says, by faith he kept the Passover. By faith you had to believe. If you didn't believe, obviously you wouldn't. Sacrifice the lamb. You would yawn over God's threats of judgment. You would be indifferent. You would go on your merry way. You would set your alarm clock for the morning thinking, no, he's not really going to follow through with it. But if you believed, you would be safe. If you trusted, you would be safe. In fact, it is fascinating to note in Exodus 12:38 if you look towards the end of the chapter <clears throat> it says a foreign multitude went up with them along with the flocks and herds a very large number of livestock. A foreign multitude In other words, those coming out of Egypt weren't only Hebrews. Evidently, there was quite a few Egyptians who believed. Maybe even some other Gentile people who were living in Egypt. They believed. But they believed. They were alive. They went with God's people. In fact, there were certain standards to partake of the meal. You had to be one of God's covenant people. In Exodus 12, 43, and Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it. In other words, the idea must be no foreigner who doesn't become one of part of God's people, who doesn't identify with God's people and even go through the ceremonies of God's people. But every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him may eat of it. A foreign resident or a hired person shall not eat of it. It shall be eaten in a single house. You shall not bring forth any flesh outside the house. You shall not break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel shall celebrate this. What was the point? You had to become one of God's covenant people which which required faith. You had to believe this is the true and living God. I identify with him. I believe that this lamb will get me through the night. This lamb will be a substitute for the judgment of God. 
And again, friends, it's the same today. You have to believe. You have to trust. Imagine with me for a moment you're hanging from a monkey bars. Some of you kids like the monkey bars. You have to be strong enough to go on the monkey bars. But imagine you're hanging on a monkey bar and below you is hell. And suspended between you and hell is the Lord Jesus. And he says to you, you need to let go of the monkey bars and I'll catch you. That takes faith, right? You have to believe what he says. And you're holding on for dear life. You're hanging on the monkey bars. No, no, I'm going to hold on in my own strength, in my own power. And Jesus says, let go. Trust in me. I will catch you. Friend, you have to believe. You have to believe the Lord Jesus is able to catch you, to bear that full judgment as he did upon the cross. And you have to persevere in that faith, persevere in that belief. Notice, you had to stay in the house. The blood was applied, the meal was eaten, but you couldn't go out and get a smoke. You had to stay in the house. You had to stay put in order to be shielded from God's judgment You had to persevere in believing. Friend, persevere in believing. Don't stop believing. Don't give up on Jesus. God, he's been faithful to all of his threats of judgment and all of his promises of grace in the past and he will be faithful to all of his threats of judgment and all of his promises of grace in the future. Trust in Jesus, my friend. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these ancient rituals, these ancient shadows, these ancient pictures that point us to these glorious realities that we find in Jesus. Lord, forgive us for neglecting our Old Testaments, which lay the foundation for us to see how it all fits together. Lord, I pray for anyone who's not yet partaken of the Passover lamb. Lord, I pray that even this morning they would come to Jesus, believe in him, and find full forgiveness, full rescue and deliverance from your judgment. In Jesus' name. Amen.